Welcome to Energy Matters, where we explore alternative health in the Pioneer Valley. I'm your host, Caroline Rutterman, and I'm a Reiki professional and intuitive in Northampton, Massachusetts. For the past nine years, I've been teaching people how to use their intuition and helping them reduce stress and anxiety. Together, we'll talk with other practitioners and learn how they bring health and healing to the Pioneer Valley. Let's do this. Hey, welcome, welcome, everyone. You are listening to Energy Matters, and I am your host, Caroline Rutterman, and we have a great show for you today. We are here talking about uh, vaccines with Dr. John Perdrize. So welcome. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> um, so uh, John Perdrize is uh, he's a, a doctor of uh, veterinary medicine. Um, so so tell us a little bit about who you are, John, and, and what you do in the Pioneer Valley. Sure, I've been uh, I've been in the valley for about 25 years. Prior to that, I was uh, practicing as a veterinarian um, in New York State, mostly at Cornell University, where I was uh, teaching large animal medicine and um, and doing a PhD at the time in virology too. So I I have a specialty in internal medicine and a PhD in virology from Cornell University. Um, <clears throat> and then subsequently, when I moved to to Pioneer Valley, I opened up my own practice back in '95, and, and somewhere around 2008, I uh, was uh, finding Western medicine wanting <laughs> in its ability to deal with oh, lots of chronic diseases that we uh, had run out of hope for when you can't throw non-steroidal steroids, antibiotics, that, and they uh, they don't get better. So. I um, went to Florida um, intermittently to a the Qi Institute down there. It's the largest institute of traditional Chinese veterinary medicine in the United States. And uh, <clears throat> I learned Chinese medicine. I started with just acupuncture, but became certified in all, all four modalities. And the four modalities are acupuncture, herbology, Food therapy and then Twina. Twina is uh, Chinese medical massage. So I became um, certified in all of those between 2008 and 2017. And then I went on to do a study to, um, in preparation for my master's degree in Chinese medicine. And the Qi Institute awarded its first group of master's degrees in Chinese medicine in 2019. And uh, I was in that group. There were 30 of us. So the first 30 practitioners to get a master's degree in the United States in Chinese medicine. I'm pretty proud of that. And um, you should be proud of that. I feel like that's a that's kind of pioneering in in this country is bringing, you know, the the acupuncture and you know the all of Chinese medicine into into the veterinary practice. That's, you know, it's like a lot of people don't want to throw, you know, like antidepressants at their animals or, you know, anti-anxiety things at their animals. And, um, you know, there's a lot of other ways to do things. Absolutely. So, so I've become a confirmed believer in integrative medicine. I mean, the, the strength and the value of Western medicine, we all know it's powerful and it's, uh, it, um, can meet the challenges of many diseases thrown at it, but there, it comes up wanting often when it comes to individual person and animal care and the integration of Chinese or, or any 
alternative medicine and Western medicine, I think, is, is sorely needed. In China, you go to a hospital and you've got two doors you can go through. You can go to the, the right door and, and <clears throat> go get Western medicine. You can go to the left door and get traditional Chinese medicine. And you can go from one back and forth to the other. And uh, that's the way it's practiced very frequently in China. But it would some someday be wonderful if here in the United States we could do a similar thing. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you do you find that um, maybe not the animals themselves, but the their uh, their people? Do you find that there's any hesitancy um, towards the the Chinese medicine that you're bringing into your veterinary practice? Um, do you do you have to do a lot of education? Um, or do people still have any kind of um, negative ideas about what acupuncture is? Or like, I don't know, is there any friction, or do people come to you because you do this? Um, both. I have a, my practice has started, as I said, in 95. It wasn't until 2008 that I began the journey of, um, of doing integrative medicine with the Chinese medicine. So prior to that, 100% of my clients were Western only. Um, so during my education in the past, um, you know, 12 years of learning Chinese medicine, I meet people of all walks of life. There's, there's those that were used to Western medicine, comfortable Western medicine, and don't want any Chinese medicine. Um, but they're in a minority, I believe. The, the majority of people um, are open to it, especially if you take the time to um, explain to them how it can help. And, you know, we're big in medicine with the, the uh, Latin phrase, primum non nocere, which is first do no harm. And first do no harm, if you want to, to stack Western medicine up to traditional Chinese medicine, uh, there's almost no comparison. I mean, just think about the commercials you see on TV for all these these new age medications that are mostly monoclonal antibody type medicines and, and all the disclaimers they put and all the problems that can go on with these new medicines that you can take. You won't find that very often with Chinese medicine. You don't find... Um, that it can do any harm. So it's a very safe way to practice medicine. And um, I find most of my clients are therefore um, willing to try it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, like you said, like, you know, you're a big believer in integrative medicine. It's like, you know, the, the two work so nicely together. It's like, you don't have to go all into one camp or the other, having some fluidity between them, depending on what the situation is calling for. And, you know, where you, it, it allows your intuition to kind of, you know, have, have a role in, in healing, you know? Absolutely. We, um, a good example, of it, for example, would be non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Older dogs and cats, particularly older dogs, that um, require some non-steroidal medication because they've got old age arthritis and it's hard to get around. Um, <clears throat> when I combine the non-steroidals with Chinese medicine, acupuncture, herbology, and, and massage, and, and different types of foods, you find that frequently you can decrease the non-steroidal needs. Um, so instead of having to give a pill, say, twice a day or the high end of the dose once a day, you can frequently give a quarter of the dose that you would normally use in Western medicine and um, support it with the Chinese um, medical um, techniques. 
and therefore decrease chances of any side effects and towards side effects of the, of the Western medicine. I love it. Yep. Just a little goes a long way. That's right. So, um, so if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Energy Matters, and we're here chatting with um, Dr. John Perdrize. Um, John, can you tell us a little bit about what your veterinary practice looks like right now with the new safety protocols? I guess they're not new because we're coming up to the year anniversary of COVID nineteen. Um, but what is, what does it look like um, when somebody brings uh, their animals to your veterinary clinic now? Yeah, uh, I think most. The majority of veterinary practices are, are practicing the way I am right at the moment, which is, um, unfortunately, our clients aren't allowed inside buildings yet. Um, <clears throat> we do curbside pickup of the animal. The owners come into the parking lot and we wait for turn and we go out and get the dog or the cat carrier or, or, uh, or um, carry the bunny wrapped in a blanket and get them back into the clinic. And the owners stay in the car and we, we either talk to them on the phone or we take multiple trips out there to talk to them about what we found, what their options are and that. So in one way, um, it's been good in that we can focus on the animal without the owner in the room. And sometimes that can give us more information when you've got an animal that is so tightly bound to their owner when you get them into the exam room, they don't pay any attention to you. All they're trying to do is get away from you and get back into the arms of your owner. Right. <laughs> I tend to, the majority of them tend to relax and, uh, and you have a better rapport with the animal with the owner gone, which is interesting. There are certainly dogs, in fact, and I don't know why is it always the 80 pound dog that puts the brakes on and won't go up. <laughs> He's like, I know my power here. <laughs> we get those animals too that, that are a little bit more nervous. But in general, that's been one positive side. The, the big downside is communication. Um, trying to communicate what needs to be done um, over the phone as opposed to in person where you've got, you know, all kinds of, of cues that you can use and, um, in, in talking and facial expressions and the way you stand to calm people down or to help help them deal with a difficult situation. It, it is certainly harder or a phone or um, through the window of a car. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I, I would have always thought that animals would have been um, uh, more relaxed when they had their owner nearby, but I, I think it's so interesting that the uh, almost the opposite is true of that. Yeah, I think you'll find that, you know, animals are like people and that, uh, and that they, there's various, uh, ways they express their emotions and, and needs and, and, um, the need to have the owner there and some of them is, is critical. In fact, there's dogs that, and I've had it with pets, but with dogs I've found that occasionally we, we will do them right on the lawn rather than take them into the clinic with the owner standing by the car. And some of the, you know, the ones that are really attached to the owners, sometimes that works. Um, but the majority of them do just fine alone in the front of them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, if you're just tuning in, we're chatting with, do uh, Dr. John Perdrize, um, of the, uh, the Sanctuary Animal Clinic in Holyoke. Um, now, John, I have a question for you and I got some very mixed advice. This was, 
again, you know, when everything was happening and unfolding, we were learning a lot of information as we were kind of going. And um, early on, I remember there was some, uh, you know, some data that was coming out saying that cat, like dogs couldn't get COVID-19, but cats like there, there was some higher risk for, for cats, for felines. And when I talked to my, uh, a different vet, she was saying that like, she really kind of dismissed it. And I know she was trying to like ebb down on some of the fear that people, you know, latch yeah. onto and, you know, kind of run away with. Um, yeah. but, I kind of felt a little bit dismissed in that moment having that conversation with that other um, veterinarian because I know that, you know, she was trying to make sure that like, okay, this is not a fear-based situation. We don't have to worry about ourselves as well as our animals catching this um, COVID-19. But what can you can you fill in the gaps a little bit? Like, can cats catch COVID nineteen? Is it a totally different coronavirus that we're talking about? Um, yeah, I, I just I'd like to get I'd like to get a second opinion. Sure. Um, so let's step back and look at coronaviruses in general. There are ten, hundreds of coronaviruses, thousands probably, um, and all species are are affected by coronaviruses. I mean, since I was in vet school back in the eighties, we dealt with coronaviruses in in cattle. We dealt with coronaviruses in in cats, um, dogs. We've been dealing with coronaviruses for a long time as veterinarians in different species. Um, this particular coronavirus obviously came from an animal reservoir. To this date, we still aren't quite sure. We believe it's certainly that. But did the bats get that from another species before them? Who knows how, uh, how it's evolved through the different species. So when it's, when it's Virus and the coronavirus jumps species, it becomes more volatile than it did in the original species. So to be able to make, um, concrete statements about that virus in which you say, don't worry about it, it's only going to affect people in the early stages of a virus that has jumped to a totally different species is, is not right. I mean, you've got to hedge your back. You're not sure. Um, any, any respiratory virus can theoretically, from any species, can get into any other species. You go to a big horse show and there's flu flying around, it's affecting the horses. Well, when a horse, say, say is too close to a horse that has a high fever from, from flu, could, could the virus get in you? Sure. The virus can land on your mucous membrane and the virus can try to enter the cell and try to replicate. But it won't ever come to a high enough level of replication to cause disease. So back to cats, cats have been known to replicate the virus in their upper respiratory tract um, <clears throat> from humans. So humans can infect cats. Um, do they get sick? Well, obviously we know that is affirmative for sure if after this pandemic Every veterinarian was online saying, you know, I've got 26 cats with respiratory disease in these past weeks because a wave of virus has gone through the human population. But we haven't seen that. We haven't seen anything like that. Um, but can researchers find the virus 
in a respiratory tract attached from a household of infected people? Yes. The virus can go from the person to the cat. Will it cause disease? Most likely not. And if so, it's minimal. Occasionally, there are case reports of, of sick animals where they found virus from the virus positive. Whether it's causality or just, um, you know, that they happen to find the virus at the same time as the cat was sick from something else. It's hard to, hard to parse that out when you're just dealing with one animal. You know, it's over time, epidemiologically, that you can then start to put together groups of animals that um, were virus positive that had all the similar sim- symptoms. But we aren't seeing that with cats. We are seeing that you can you can culture the virus, you can get the virus back from cats occasionally in a household of infected people. But we're not seeing vice versa. We're not seeing high levels of virus shed from a cat enough to infect people, no. Okay. Yeah. That that gives me a lot more information, at least for, you know, the, the kind of situational um yeah. So it could it could jump, but we don't we don't really fully know yet. But it's not it's not happening on a mass level, otherwise all the veterinarians would be chatting about it. On a, on, a, on an interesting scientific level, yes, but not from a um public health standpoint where you and I have to worry about our cats, no. Okay. Perfect. All right. So if you are just tuning in, you're listening to Energy Matters here on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM. And um, we are chatting with uh, Dr. John Perdrizay. Um So um, I, I did see recently that uh, in in uh, there was a gorilla, I believe, in, in uh, one of the zoos. I forgot. I should have looked this up right before. Um, but I was seeing that like uh, gorillas are actually getting vaccinated um, in captivity. Uh, against mm-hmm. COVID nineteen, and which kind of makes sense because gorillas are very similar That's to right. humans. They're we're cousins. That's right. As we talked about before, is when a, when a virus jumps species and starts out anew, um, we can't predict for sure where it's going to go and how many species it will affect. But you know, luckily we had knowledge of the phylogenetic tree of evolution, and we know that primates, we all uh, are closely related to them, so you would suspect that that would be um, another target species for this new coronavirus, and I think that was a very good judicial uh, decision to start vaccinating primates. Yeah. So you you had chatted about this earlier um, about how you um, you had gotten your master's uh, in Chinese medicine Chinese veterinary medicine um, at the Chi Institute in Florida and um, you you wrote a paper that your your research was based on vaccinating uh, immune points uh, so can you tell us I think from what I remember can you tell us. Tell us a little bit more about all the research that you had done um, back then and um, and the paper that you just published. Yeah, this is um, incredibly fascinating, and, and I'm very proud of the research because, again, it shows the power and the value of integrative medicine. Um, I was raised then in traditional Western medicine, became a viral, uh, special communicable medicine, and PhD in virology, and through all of that, um, was intimately involved in, in watching the development of vaccines and sometimes helped in the clinical trials of new vaccines in animals. Um, this is back in the 80s and the 90s. And, um, 
the way we've always looked at vaccines, as far as their efficacy and their ability to uh, protect us, is how do we make the vaccine stronger? How do we make it work better? And it's, we've always focused totally on the vaccine, not on the host, not the animal or the person that you are going to give the vaccine to. Um, <clears throat> so that's where the whole idea of, you probably all heard about adjuvants. Um, adjuvants are chemicals that are added to some vaccine uh, that will tweak the immune system to sort of say to the immune system, hey, look, look over here. This is where we are. Because when you just put the, the protein from the vaccine or the ground up virus back then, there were just um, viruses that had been, um, had been chemically disrupted and put them into a, uh, an arm, into a person or an animal, sometimes you can get a very good immune response. The immune system wasn't too impressed with the, the vaccine and what it So they started adding these things like adjuvants, um, and that's where aluminum hydroxide, you've probably heard of that. People are afraid of aluminum in their vaccine. You know, I think, I think I have a right to be worried about that, putting some aluminum into your arm. Yeah. A lot of vaccine. But, but the reason they did it was to get your immune system to focus on that area, pick up more of the, the virus particles or, or proteins, and develop higher antibody titers. And that's what you want. You want a higher, higher titer. It's a measurable amount of antibody in the bloodstream. The higher that titer is, generally, the more protective you, you, protected you are. So the higher the titer, the better. Um, and again, it's always been based on trying to tweak the vaccine and have nothing to do with the human or the animal that it's being put into. And I, as I took Chinese medicine and having had this long background in vaccinology, the study of vaccines, um, I was always piqued my interest when they would talk about immune, immune stimulating process, 365 or more. Uh, vaccination points um, on the body. And there's a, a dozen or so that are purportedly immune-stimulating or immune-modulating. They'll help bring the immune system down. They'll help bring the immune system up. And my conjecture was, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if we took one of these points and we put a vaccine in it? Would it be any different? Would, it, would we therefore, without having to modulate or change the vaccine, just put it in a different spot in the human being, or in my case, I was studying animals. So I did that, and I took a uh, hundred dogs, and I, I, I did this right in my own practice, kind of the setting. Clients would come in, I'd say, hey, your dog's due <laughs> for its distemper vaccine. You want to be in a trial? And I just, we'd describe this trial. You've got, you're going to pick a uh, number out of this hat, and if it's an odd number, you're in this group. If it's an even number, you're in that group. Yep. So um, totally random study, and people would say, sure, I'll let my dog eat. Because essentially, they were still getting the same vaccine. We weren't changing the fact that the dog was getting vaccinated. It's just where we were going to put the vaccine. When, right. when, when, if you go to watch a veterinarian vaccinate animals, they can vaccinate them anywhere they want, you know, under, under the skin or in the muscle. Yeah. Um, where where would um where would uh, an animal typically get a vaccine that's not practicing Chinese medicine? Sure. Well, well, in, in um in dogs, for example, we put them 
primarily up around the shoulders, the base of the neck, anywhere in that area. You know, a, a real bitey dog that doesn't have anything to do with that. You Get can em. put them in, put yeah. them in the foot, put them back. In, in cats, we tend, tend to, generally, we tend to put them down lower in the, on the leg um, because there's some uh, problems associated with cats with, with uh, the rare, very rare, but um, but tumors associated with a vaccine. So you don't want them up at the base of the neck where it's hard to remove a tumor if you need to. Um, but it's very rare in that. And some of the um, the places that you were investigating, some of the um, immune points along the meridians, uh, where I'm sure there's some acupuncturists listening out there. Um, where were some of the immune points that you um, that you were experimenting and doing some of these trials with? So for acupuncturists out there, it would be GV14, GV1, large intestine 10, um, CV12, and uh, stomach 36. Those are the and for and for the rest of us, <laughs> <laughs> where, where yeah. are those places? <laughs> so, so stomach thirty six, for example, would be about um, about five six inches below your knee and over to the outside of the knee, the lateral side, the muscle right there below the knee. Okay. There's an um, GB fourteen is wonderful in dogs, not in, but not so great in people, and it's it's right at the base of the neck. If you if you reach back and feel that. That bone is the basic, the neck right and midline. That's that's the thoracic vertebrae number one, and right in front of that is where you would vaccinate. And that's what I use for dogs because it's a big hole in dogs and a big soft spot. So you don't want, didn't want to use that in people, but I use that in dogs because it was a nice, nice area and accepting area. Um, and then um, large intestine ten, which would be down on your forearm, um, muscular part of your forearm on the outside. Uh, so there's different, lots of different spots. Um, and I use GB14, as I said, and half of the dogs, 50 of them, I put the GB14, and half of them I put the, um, um, oh, just in front of the point of the shoulder to find the shoulder blade, just in front of that. So at the base, on the side of the neck, not on the top line. The GB14 is sort of right in the midline, whereas the, um, the control group got it along the side of the neck. And essentially, all we did was um, check their titers um, 14 days later to see how they responded. And in the control group, the titers went up 80 percent, which is good. It's a good, healthy response. The blood titer went up 80 percent. In the acupuncture group, it went up 240 percent. What? Yeah. Wow, that's dramatic. And if you know about p values, whether something's significant or not. The p value is 0. 0.002, and most studies need 0. 0.05. So this is an actual zero and a half. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It was very significant. Wow. First time this has ever been done in any species, human or First time anybody's done this. I guess because I took my education of early in my life and combined it with the traditional Chinese medicine, which most people don't go on to learn once you know what's in there. Yeah. The interesting thing is getting it published. You go ahead and ask me anything else you want. Yeah. So what, how how many years was it? Um, well, I guess first, after seeing such dramatic results, did that become integrated into your veterinary practice when you started administering vaccines to animals on like a day-to-day? Like, were you starting to say, okay, well, this is such a dramatic response. Let me just administer all vaccines on these locations now. 
Absolutely. With with dogs, yeah. That's what, what I do almost all the time. If they're getting multiple vaccines on a certain day, you certainly can't do that. I wouldn't put them all in one spot, no. Um, but you can you can spur up the vaccines and have them come back and do that spot again, you know, two weeks, two months later. Now, how how does um I guess, you know, if, if somebody's not trained, the thing about the meridian points, from my understanding, is that they're very, very specific places along the body. So mm-hmm. from my understanding, like, how, how would you communicate somebody who isn't trained in veterinary Chinese medicine uh, to administer the, or, you know, even somebody who's uh, trained in mm-hmm. regular master, Western medicine to administer vaccines, how would you say, like, this is the exact spot that you need to be administering, not like a little to the left or a little to the right? Right. Um, how, how does that translate um, for other people in, in the medical world? That's a great question, and that's one of the reasons why I chose TV14 in dogs. I mean, it would be different with different species, but in dogs, um, you fall into it. <laughs> in other words, TV14 is right on the midline, so we don't have to worry about being a little to the left or the right. Right on the midline, come down the neck where the neck meets the top of the midline where the neck meets the shoulders. And you'll take your thumb and go down the neck until you, you go right into a hole. I mean, your thumb literally goes into a deep depression right there, um, just in front of the scapula, just in front of the shoulders. And it's just in front of this vertebrae, um, the thoracic vertebrae one. And so it's very easy to find. Um, with some of the other parts are harder to find, like I talked about some of 36, but they're not really difficult, but somebody would have to actually stand there and show you if you're not an acupuncturist. Whereas GB14, by my description, now over the phone, somebody can go, oh yeah, I found it right here. It's so simple to find. In fact, everybody out there with a dog, <laughs> and you can find GB14 on your dog, I guarantee it. Just find the midline on their back, Go down the neck and your thumb or your finger will fall right into a depression right in front of the shoulder. That is GV14. Very yeah. cool. And yeah. would, could you, uh, you know, could, if somebody, um, is, you know, with their, with their animal, um, with their dog specifically, could they use that to stimulate their, their animal's immune system by kind of just gently, gentle pressure or, um. Absolutely. This is- so your veterinarian isn't an acupuncture, so they don't believe in traditional Chinese medicine. They don't have to. Let them vaccinate their dog wherever they feel comfortable vaccinating, or your cat. And then when you get home, just take your thumb while you're sitting watching TV and the dog's in your lap and just press into that spot gently for, you know, 30 seconds to a minute. You don't have to push hard, just gently. And, um, there's some belief that counterclockwise is more stimulating and counterclockwise is more depressing. But you don't, if you wanted to do that, you could do counterclockwise, you could believe that, or it could just steady pressure on that spot would be, would be helpful. Yeah. Wow. And I always encourage people, you know, I, I teach people to, uh, you know, use Reiki with on their animals and all kinds of stuff, but I always encourage people to like either through a little telepathy, using your mind to their mind, sending thoughts, or just even verbally, let your animals know what you're doing because they will turn around and give you the weirdest looks if you start doing this kind of stuff without letting them know. Um, cause they're yeah. like, they know they're, they're creatures of energy. So, um, I always, you know, t- make sure your, your, your animals know what you're doing. Just let them verbalize it. <laughs> I think we all need to, to believe in that more, you know, and that, that 
energy matters. <laughs> it's so important. And and it, we're talking about just even intention. What's your intention? Um, if if you intend to help, you're usually helping. You know, even if it doesn't come out just the way you want it to be, um, the intention itself is so important. Absolutely. So you were doing this kind of very fascinating work um, as part of your kind of research uh, with the Chi Institute as you were getting your your master's in in veterinary medicine um, and uh, in, in tra- Chinese medicine. Sorry, it's like a yeah, it's like a lot to verbalize. <laughs> masters in veterinary Chinese medicine. Um, so, so you just had this study published after how many how many years between when you actually did the study and when this publication just came out? Well, it took two years to get it published. Okay, so. What can you tell us a little bit about um, what prompted the publication um, and what some of the response has been? Well, it's been it's sort of an interesting ride with it because, again, remember we're in the United States and uh, Western Western medicine reigns supreme, and um, a lot of uh, disbelief or, or skepticism about traditional Chinese medicine. In, um, in Western medicine, at least in veterinary side of things, for sure. Um, so when I tried to get it published to begin with, I mean, certainly the reason I decided to publish it was it was so, so significant. And um, it has such an incredible implication um, in what we call one world medicine, in both human and animal um, health, that uh, I felt I couldn't just let it on the shelf, I needed to get it out there. So, so we take the uh, paper and we try to get it get it accepted and published. And the first place that I wanted to go was something called JABMA, J-A-D-M-A. That's the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association. It's a new journal that, oh, 90% of the veterinarians in the United States read and get. So I wanted, I wanted my colleagues in practice to see this more than anybody else. And I submitted the paper to JAMA, and I was um, actually taken aback, sort of astounded by how they reacted to it. The editors um, had it for about two to three weeks, and they sent it back to me and said that it wasn't um, it wasn't worth publishing in JAMA because it wasn't of interest to the community. And they never sent the article on to anybody to still review it. This is just a decision by the editorial board. Right. Um, and I was astounded and hurt. <laughs> yeah. It's like you spend all this time, like, putting your heart into this work, and it's just, you know, there's, well, and, it's on the cutting board. Right. Right. And, and basic information that has a profound ability to change um, vaccinology, the study of vaccines and how we use them. Um, it just seems to me um, myopic view. So, but I, Undeterred, um, pick the better journal. Uh, JABMA is one of the top 100 journals um, in, the United, in the United States. But I chose one that was one of the top 30 journals in the United States. It's a journal called Vaccine. Now, none of your readers, or very few of them, would have ever even heard of the, the journal. But if you're um, anybody in academics or um, in large medical settings, you've heard of this, this journal, and it's probably the 
preeminent journal to have to do with vaccines in general. They accept um, articles from veterinarians, and they have veterinary medicine in the journal, and, and human medicine, but this is the first time ever that they had a article on integrated medicine, taking Western medicine and Chinese medicine, combining them. This is the first time that they, and I employed, when I sent the paper, I, I implored the, the uh, editor to please have an open mind and that, that this could change the face of medicine. And luckily he listened and he sent the article on to reviewers and, and peer review process is unbelievably hard. The, the paper came back to me three times for changes or clarifications and, and every time it, it a lot of work, but at the end, you do realize that the peer review process helps sharpen it and make it a better, much better um, paper. Yeah. And they uh, published it. Congratulations. That is yeah. huge. And then um, the email started coming in from, I was surprised, I got very, very few from veterinarians or veterinary medicine. In fact, no, veterinarians in practice won't see that article. Because they don't get the journal vaccine. Because it's not the, it's not their necessarily go to, right? right. Exactly. General, practice, general practitioners don't look at such a specific um, journal. Um, but I got so many responses from all over the world. I mean, name name just about any country and most major cities. And someone from there had sent me uh, an email saying. Would you be interested in sharing your information with us on a Zoom meeting or um, prior to COVID? When do you want to come <laughs> and give a talk? And so it was, it was, um, yeah, next, next nice winter, day. you might be off in Ghana somewhere or who right. knows. Right. So, so there is a, there is a big interest in it. And I'm just happy that the information is out there and that it will now be followed up on. Whether spurious or not, you know, studies that show significant findings aren't always 100%. Somebody else could do the same study and find it's not correct. But over time, studying it in other species and hopefully in humans too, that you'll find that it does help and it will make a significant contribution to vaccines, which right now, wow, you know, if we knew prior to this that putting a Johnson Johnson vaccine into Stomach 36 would make it, instead of 65% effective, make it 95% effective. Or any of the vaccines, we could use one quarter of the dose instead of the whole dose. We could have shared more vaccine. We'd have more doses available and, and insult our immune system less, right? Just like I talked about earlier with the, with the non-steroidal. You could use less of the vaccine and so therefore have less possible side effects and and have a um, more robust um, community. Yeah, yeah. that's so exciting. That is so exciting. So have you had time to kind of get, I know winter is a little bit of a quieter season for you because a large part of your practice is, is a large animal veterinary, uh, veterinary care. Um, have you had time to get to all the emails and, and the information coming through? Yeah, I've talked to um, emailed quite, quite a few different, um, places. Um, and like I said, they're interested in, in following up on my study and other species. Some of them want to do it in horses. Some of them want to do it in cows. 
Um, I haven't had anybody in the human field um, that wanted to do it in humans, but they're all very interested in the research. So, yeah. I mean, if somebody was getting their COVID-19 vaccine, um, mm-hmm. you know, and you, we went up and we said like, oh, hey, could you, could you do oh. it in my, instead of in the shoulder? Like, <laughs> would that be disastrous? Yeah, well, unfortunately, you're not going to do that because that makes them liable, right? Okay. Because now they're doing it um, in a spot that isn't um, accepted by the general, general, it's called standard of care. And if you go against standard of care, it puts you out and you're out there on your own. So it's unfortunate that that um, medicine, like everything else, is so litigious, but they do have to cover cover their rear end and, and um, they probably wouldn't vaccinate you in. But would I, if somebody gave me a vaccine, would I put it into one of these spots for myself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very cool. But I mean, in in theory, you know, Obviously, this isn't necessarily like, you know, t- like in, along the exact same lines of your study, but like, you know, in theory, it's like, well, if we strengthened our immune system before we got the vaccine, then the chances of that immune response, the body's immune response would be heightened to accept the vaccine coming in. Yeah. And there's other, that's a very good point, too, is that after we say vaccinate a dog or a cat or a horse or a human, how long does an antibody tell you last? Eventually it will, will, um, wane off after the time. But, but what if we stimulate that spot either with pressure or with something less innocuous in the vaccine, like just a B vitamin shot? What if I were to put vitamin B12 in that acupuncture spot a year after I vaccinated you? Would it stimulate the immune system to produce more general antibody and it would last longer? We don't know that, but it's certainly a possibility. Therefore, you wouldn't have to be re-exposed to the vaccine, but you get the benefit of the titles that you already have. Is this... Is this, does this make you, um, you know, now that it's kind of like everybody's kind of getting excited and interested, uh, you know, based on your, your recent publication, does it make you want to do more research around this? Or are you like letting everybody else do the work? I, I'm, I'm old enough at this point. I'm going to let everybody else do the work. You know, <laughs> I, I was originally, originally trained. That was my, my training was to become a researcher and a teacher. Um, that's why I got the, the, Specialty in general medicine, why I did the virology study, uh, became a PhD in virology. It's really to, to continue on that way. But I love clinical practice so much that I <laughs> wanted to come back to it, you know. But yeah, I mean, it certainly would be fun to, to do some out a little bit, you know, go back and help at, say, Cornell or Tufts or one of these other schools and get involved a little bit with them. It'd be great. Yeah, maybe as a consultant. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> a consultant is always the the fun word for. Um, I'm just gonna dip my toes in and you know not be not be fully responsible for everything. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, um, do you have any last words of wisdom that you would like to kind of throw out uh, into into the universe um, about the recent study or just anything else that we've kind of covered or didn't get a chance to really fully fully explore today? Yeah, well, I think you sort of um, know me well enough to know that that my biggest passion is um, 
is having an open mind and, and getting my clients and people around me to open their minds to other possibilities and not just um, wave something off when you don't really know about it. It astounds me how many people will, will say, oh, acupuncture, it's useful. Um, when I took the course, I, I went in to take the course um, very as a skeptical Western practitioner. And, um, but with my lot, willing to see if I, I could, I could ascertain if it was a, a beneficial effect to me. And there was no question by the end of the year that it had totally changed my life. Um, in my, my recognition that these alternative meditation, um, theories can, can help in tremendous ways to strengthen our Western based medicine. So, I just encourage people to have an open mind with with all sorts of things nowadays. You know, and sometimes you're going to, and um, it's best not to uh, to go down rabbit holes. It's best to keep your, your head up and, and take in all the information. Yeah, absolutely, and especially when it's t- when we're talking about our animals. You know, it's like if if there's some potential that you know this thing can cause no harm, but you know, increase the, our, our health and our, the, the health of our loved ones. And why not? Yeah. I, um, one minute. Let me give a little vignette on that. Sure. Yeah. We've got, we've got three minutes. (laughs) So here's a perfect example is in Western medicine, what do we feed the dogs in our cats? What's in the food? And and if you ask us, what's the side? and nutrition, they're going to say, let's see, we've got protein, we've got fat, we've got carbohydrates, and then we've got minerals, and we've got vitamins. What else is there? So if I put together a meal that has 30% protein, 30% fat, and 30% uh, carbohydrate, and then balance the minerals in it, etc., does it matter whether it's fish that's in the protein or lamb? No, it does not. The nutritionist in Western medicine, it does not matter. But in Chinese medicine, it makes all the difference in the world because of the energetics of food. And we don't think about the energetics of food in Western medicine. Fish is very cooling. Lamb is very hot. So take a two-year-old Labrador retriever that's in your face all the time and chewing the legs on the chair and running outside like a crazy man. You want to give a dog that's that young, that hot? You want to give them lamb? You want to give them something that makes them hot? Make them hotter? No. Give them fish. There's a perfect example of the balance of a holistic approach that we don't even think about in Western medicine. Um, so, you know, there's so many other um, things we could talk about like that. But open your mind to the fact that there are other ways to look at um how to heal ourselves and keep ourselves in balance. Yep, that's right. And everything has energy to it and everything has different properties and, you know, different ways of, of, of assisting our balance or imbalance. So, 
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on the show. And if you're just tuning in, we've been chatting with um, Dr. John Perdrize, who's a veterinarian, and his clinic is um, the the Animal Sanctuary Clinic, the Sanctuary Clinic uh, in Holyoke. So. Um, and if you missed this episode and you want to catch the whole thing, you can always download the podcast, the Energy Matters podcast, anywhere that you download podcasts. Um, it's a little Starburst logo. Or you can always go on to ReikiNorthampton.com backslash radio dash archives and get this episode. It's usually up within a week. Um, but thank you again so much, John. Um, you can stay on the line and we are going to close out. So have a great weekend, everyone, and be well. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome, John.